Thank you, GetWell, for joining us for this, the first Sunday of 2021. We have made it. Hallelujah. We are in the new year. Now, I don't know uh, how you are handling uh, this new year. Maybe you're one of those that you're just glad that you made it out of 2020. Or I don't know if you're one of those who've got a little extra oomph in you and you still continue to set a New Year's resolution for 2021. Uh, I don't know where you land in that, but if you have set a New Year's resolution for this new year, I wonder what it is for you. Maybe it's, I want to be happier or healthier or wealthier, or I, I don't know what it is for you might be, uh, but it might be for many of us that you want to read through the Bible in 2021. Uh, for a lot of us watching uh, today, participating in worship today, you've either made that your resolution or maybe sometime in your life you've made a goal that I want to read through the Bible. But here's what happens to a lot of us. We, we get that goal. We start at the beginning of the book. We start reading through and then we get stuck somewhere around Leviticus or Numbers and the genealogies and the rules and the names and all the stuff and we just kind of lose our way and we don't end up reading through the Bible. But here's what happens when we don't know God's Word. You're going to depend on messages like this or videos or podcasts just to get the highlights of what God's truth is. And when you do that, there are going to be things that hit you in your life and you won't be able to discern between what is true or maybe just partly true or not true at all. And what we tend to do is we treat the Bible kind of like in concordance where something happens in life and we go to the back and we're like, okay, what does it say about marriage? Or, all right, tell me what it says about parenting. Or what does it say about money? Or what does it say about work? Or what does it say about church or faith? And we just try to find bits and pieces. But the truth of God's Word is when we dive into it every single day, when we live it and breathe it and wrestle with it, it is absolutely going to transform our lives. So we want to start out this new year with a commitment that we're going to help each other know and wrestle with and live and breathe God's Word, His truth for us. So we've put together a guide. We hope that you'll pick up one of these at the church or you can find this online that's going to walk you through an accessible way where we're going to be able to read all of God's story from Genesis to Revelation by the time we get to Easter. So hopefully you'll join with us uh, and we're going to teach on these uh, guidelines each and every week as we're going to walk through the whole story of Scripture and our focus through it all is going to be how do we see Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. So today we want to build a foundation and begin to see that overarching story of how God is redeeming the world. This is where it begins. This is where many of us have started, if you've tried to read through the Bible, is it starts with creation. God brings everything into being. Everything that's in the universe, uh, our lives, everything that lives and breathes, everything that is, God creates it for His glory and to give us love, to bestow His favor on us. He wants us to enjoy all that He has made. From there, the next part of God's story is called the patriarchs. These are the families that give birth to the people of Israel. 
We start in Genesis 12 where God gives a blessing to Abraham and the purpose is to give a blessing that he might be a blessing. And God is going to bring a people together that he might give his salvation, his redeeming love to all the world. Now these people of Israel are going to grow so much in number and power that a local nation, a neighboring nation called Egypt is going to take notice and they conquer Israel and they make them slaves and we move into the time of slavery. Where Israel is enslaved to Egypt, they're in bondage, they're crying out to God. What we find out in this part of the story is that God is not distant, God is not deaf, He is present, He's working, He hears His people, and He's continuing to redeem and restore. Because of God's great love, we come from slavery to what's called the exodus and conquest. That God is going to move by his miraculous power to bring them out of slavery. They cross the Red Sea. You've got the ten plagues. Moses is used by God to bring the people out. And even when the people turn away from God, they make idols. They want to do life their own way. God in his grace and mercy, he's going to use the next generation and use a guy named Joshua to still bring them into the promised land to establish themselves as a people through what's called the conquest. Following the conquest, we move into a time period of judges where God gives wise judges to instruct and lead and guide the people to give the words of God to the people of God. And we see this pattern kind of take place over and over through this time period where the people find themselves in trouble. They cry out to God. God gives a wise uh, judge to lead them. Everything goes okay. The people go back to their own way. They find themselves in trouble again. They cry out to God and it's cycles again and again and again until we come to the final judge, this prophet named Samuel. And the people come to Samuel and they say, Samuel, we want to be like all the other nations. We want a king. Samuel tries to talk him out of it. Uh, but God says to Samuel, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. Let them have a king. And so the people are going to move into 400 years of a kingdom 400 years of kings ruling the people of Israel. We eventually have a divided kingdom, Judah and Israel. The people are going to follow the ways of these kings. Some of them are good, some of them are bad, but increasingly they're idolatrous, turning away from God and to the point where God has to say, you are not following me and we find the Israelites in exile. First, with Israel, the Assyrians come in, they conquer northern kingdom of Israel, they pull them out, they take them to Assyria. Later, Judah is defeated as well by the Babylonians. Babylon pulls the people out, they exile them to Babylon, and the people are wondering, what in the world is happening? Where is God? But God is still present, God is still moving, God is still redeeming, He's still restoring, He's still at work. And by His grace, a remnant of people go back, and we have a return to Jerusalem. They rebuild the city. They rebuild the wall. They rebuild the temple. And things are starting to turn. And what we see here at this part of the story is that God had a plan in creation to bless, to have a relationship with his people. They turn away and from creation to exile, it's all the people are turning their back on God. They're rejecting him and things seem to be falling apart. 
But as God brings the people back to Jerusalem, we see that God has never left. God has never changed his plan to bless, to be in relationship. And we start to see the redemption and the restoration take place. So they return, they rebuild. But then we come into a, an interesting period between the Old Testament and New Testament we called silence. 400 years where there's not a prophet of God. There are no instructions from God. There's no word of God that says, this is what you are to do. And the people are waiting and they're wondering what happens next. Where is God? But what we're going to see when we come to that day, we're going to teach on the period of silence is that God was not absent. He was at work. And then the beginning, launching the New Testament, we're going to see the ministry of Jesus where Jesus is born, he is the face of God, the voice of God, the life of God with us, teaching, healing, doing miracles, teaching us about the kingdom of God, what it looks like to follow God. He gives his life, he's crucified. And just as he said he would, he rises three days later and he's resurrected and he appears to the disciples and he says, wait, I'm gonna send you the Holy Spirit. And you're going to carry on the mission. And that's just what happens. And we see the birth of the early church. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And beginning in Jerusalem, they begin to teach and preach and baptize and lead people to faith in Jesus Christ where they're saved. And then they're sent on mission. And that has carried on generation after generation on into today. As we read the Bible, we carry on the mission of God. And we are living in the modern church where we are instructed by the Word of God, His living Word, His Spirit is still alive in us. We're carrying on the mission until one day we know that Jesus is going to come again. He's going to return, the return of Christ. He will come to judge the living and the dead and to usher in God's new creation. We're going to explore this overarching story of God's redeeming, restoring plan. And what I want us to see is that from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to the return of Christ, that Jesus is the center of it all. He's not just in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, the story of his life, his death and resurrection, but he is in all of God's love letter to us. I want us to wrestle with that today just a little bit more. There's no way that we can walk through all of these uh, and see where Christ is in every bit of it, walking through Scripture. That's what we're going to do over the next 13 weeks. But I want to give us a taste. And I want us to kind of explore a couple of Scriptures. And here's why. I want you to wrestle and, and just receive this truth. Is that it has always been God's plan. It's always been His plan to send His Son Jesus to live, to die, to rise again for you. Not just the world in a general kind of way, but for you and for me. When he laid the foundations of the earth, he knew what it would cost. He knew what it would require of him. And he did it anyway because he loves us so much. So let's get a little bit of taste of how do we see Jesus through the Bible. Let's start at the beginning. Jesus in creation, Genesis chapter 1. The first three verses. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, 
And there was light. It's the Word of God that brings creation into being. Now, this very same phrase, the Word of God, appears again in John chapter 1. The first three verses again. John writes, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Here we are to understand that Jesus is forever. He is eternal. He was with God in creation. He was the means of creation. He brought creation. He breathed life into you. That he was with the Father in the beginning before there was time or space or matter. There was Jesus and he was bringing all things together for the glory of God out of love for you and me. We see Jesus in creation. We also see Jesus with Israel. Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Here David, King David, the second king of Israel, is writing this psalm, an act of worship, uh, an act of prophecy, as the Lord is speaking through him, he says, the Lord said to my Lord. Now for David, at that time in his life, there was no Lord over his life other than God. Other than Yahweh, there was no one that David had to answer to. That he was king of everything that he knew. There was no one telling him what to do. His only ruler was God himself. So when he says, the Lord said to my Lord, who in the world is he talking about? David is looking ahead to the life of the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, Jesus, the Son of God, recognizing that as Jesus comes, that all enemies, sin and death itself, will be put at the feet of Christ as Jesus will conquer it for you and for me. Now, how is Jesus going to do that? Well, we see in the prophets a word about how Jesus is going to come to defeat sin and death. Isaiah chapter 53 is one example of that. We read verses 3 through 9. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. 
here in Isaiah 53, just this one example, uh, boundful prophecies, guides about who Jesus will be, why he will come, what he will do. In his birth, in his death, in his resurrection, the point of Jesus' life and ministry was to take your sin and my sin into his life to defeat it, to be a bridge, to restore, to redeem us to God who made us. And Isaiah gives us a look at, at how he'll do this, that as he dies for us, that he's pierced for our sins and transgressions, that he took the nails into his wrist and in his feet, that he was pierced with a spear in his side. As he stood trial before Pilate and Herod, he was silent. He could have defended himself. He could have laid out, here's who I am and here's what I'm doing and what I'm up to. But instead he was silent for the glory, the purposes of God. He died a criminal's death, one on his right, one on his left. And as he died, he was buried in a rich man's tomb. Hundreds of years before Christ appears on the scene, Isaiah lays out for us just what to look for. Years pass, and finally Jesus shows up on the scene, and we see the ministry of Jesus, Jesus with us. Matthew chapter 1 announces the arrival of Jesus. Listen to these words in Matthew 1.17. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Just before this, Matthew goes through this long genealogy showing how Jesus was born in the line of David, that he is a Hebrew of Hebrews, Israelite of Israelites, that he is straight from this king line of rulers, this kingly line of heirs, kingly line of blood, that Jesus is in the line of David. Why would Matthew do that? It's because he wants us to understand that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one that the people of Israel had been waiting for. We have to understand that as God brought the people of Israel together, he was setting the stage for what he would do with Jesus. In their worship, they laid out the context for relationship between creator and created being that we would praise our heavenly father, honor and worship him, but be invited into relationship with him. In the law, God lays out the character of God and, and how we're to live our lives, but also showing us our need for God's grace, for his mercy is we're not able to live up to the plan and the purposes and the holiness of God. In their ministries and outreach to the world, caring for the poor and the widows and, and living a different kind of life. They show the, the calling of God on us. All of it laying out this purpose, the prophets leading us to the life of Jesus. That in him we would see the face of God. We would see the ways of God. We would see the compassion of God and we would be redeemed with God. And how does Jesus do this? giving his life for you and me through the crucifixion. Luke chapter 23, we, we get a piece of that story uh, starting in verse 32. Two other men, Luke writes, both criminals were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. 
and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And jump ahead to verse 44. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Fulfilling the prophecies written about him, dying a criminal's death, pierced in his body, silent before his accusers, fulfilling the purposes of God, dying for you and me, became the Lamb of God, the sacrifice, atoning for our sin, taking our sin upon himself. A couple of things jump out. We'll, we'll talk about this in, more in coming weeks. But he gives up his body at three in the afternoon, three o'clock being the, the time just behind him in the temple where the sacrifice of the lambs was taking place. Jesus becoming the final lamb. And as he gave up his life, it says the, tur- the curtain and the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from the people of God. It was torn from top to bottom, a three to five inch thick curtain, torn, ripped apart by a move of God. As God said, there's no more separation between God and you. You can come freely to me that Jesus has done everything that needs to be done. He has made a way where there was no way and you can freely come into my presence. Because Jesus has conquered sin and death. All I see is the blood of my son. You are no longer guilty before me. Jesus doing for us what we could not do for him ourselves. All through his ministry, Jesus told his followers, this is my calling that I will lay my life down for you. And when it happens, I don't want you to be surprised or afraid. I want you to know this is coming. And three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. And this is just what Jesus does. In Luke chapter 24, we see this miraculous event in the life of Jesus. Chapter 24, starting verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, The women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were there, while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. This astonishment of what the women found and later Peter and John and the other disciples found is that Jesus had indeed been risen that he was not defeated by death, that the tomb could not hold him, but he came and he lived and he pointed us to God and he embraced us and he brought us into the presence and the purpose of God and he took on sin and death and he destroyed it and he defeated it. He is the first fruits, the first to be reborn and that all who confess with their mouth and trust with their heart will be saved and will have eternal life and we will be risen with Christ again. This is the hope of the Christian life. This is the event that everything is built on. 
that Jesus rose again. And then the story continues as the early church carries on the mission of God, knowing that Jesus will indeed come again and Jesus will indeed defeat death and sin and brokenness forever. And this is our hope as we wait for Jesus to come again and make all things right. We, we read a little bit about this in Revelation chapter 19. We'll read verses 11 through 16 and then chapter 21 verses 1 through 7. John in a vision from the Lord writes down what he sees and he says, I saw a heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. There it is again. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And over to chapter 21. John writes again, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children." Encouraging words from Christ himself, the beginning and the end. It is done. When Jesus breathed his last, when he rose from that tomb, leaving it empty, the stone rolled away, it was finished. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And all who have faith in him, he will bring into the kingdom of God. Victorious by the work of Jesus and he will begin a new creation, wiping every tear, pain, sorrow, and loss gone. Only knowing hope and goodness and love and truth in the light of our Creator. It has always, always, always been God's plan for you, for me, that he would send his son Jesus to be the beginning in creation and to be the end defeating sin and death. 
As we walk through this this word of God, I want you to just continue to hold on to that hope. I want you to look for that thread through all of God's story, this thread of Jesus redeeming, restoring, giving hope, giving new life. And I hope that as we read through that you'll begin to see some of the places where God actually gives encouragement. He gives a, a little nugget, a little piece where we can see the fullness of God's story. That even for the people who are living through it, what you and I get to read today, that we know the end of the story. That even as people read through it, that they got a picture of what God was doing. And we see just one quick example. I want to close out with this where you get to see this, this fullness of God's plan revealed in just a moment. In Genesis chapter 5, we get this this strange genealogy between uh, God creating and giving life to Adam all the way to everything seems to be falling apart and the whole world is turned against God and God calls out to a guy named Noah. And if you remember from your Bible stories as children, Noah's going to make a boat and there's going to be a big flood for 40 days and then God's going to kind of start over and through one man, he's going to bring a cleansing to the earth and start new life. Sounds familiar? As we have with one man, God's son, Jesus, a cleansing of the world and giving new life. But right in between these stories, there's this weird genealogy from Adam to Noah. Ten generations. And as you read through it in Genesis chapter 5, it looks like maybe the writer just kind of stuck it in there for, you know, for us just to understand what happens and, and where these people came from. But there's something interesting that happens as you look at these names. Here are the, the ten names of the genealogy of Genesis 5, starting with Adam, who's the father of Seth, the father of Enosh, the father of Kenan, the father of Mahalalel, the father of Jared, the father of Enoch, the father of Methuselah, the father of Lamech, and finally the father of Noah. 10 generations from Adam to Noah as God begins a new start on the earth to bring new life. What I want to show you are the meanings of each of these names. Adam means mortal or man. His son Seth means appointed. The next name there, Enosh, means mortal. Kenan means to possess. Mahalalel means praiseworthy God. Jared means come down. Enoch means to initiate or to consecrate. Methuselah means to send down or to send his death. Uh, Literally, it means from the point of the spear. Lamech means to make low or to come down with power. And then finally, Noah means rest or quiet or peace. Do you see what God gives us a glimpse of here in this genealogy of Genesis chapter 5, as we're barely getting started in the story, if you put these together, man is appointed mortality to possess. So our praiseworthy God comes down to initiate, to consecrate, to do what only God can do. Sending his death, he makes himself low. He comes down with power to bring rest. This is the gospel story. This is the thread of Christ from Genesis to Revelation, the redeeming, restoring plan of God for you and for me. 
Let me say it a third time that we can really let this sink in. God's plan has always been for you and for me that he would send his son Jesus to take on our sin and defeat it, that as we trust with our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, we will be saved, we'll be set free from the brokenness within us. God begins to transform us and change us, reconnect us with him. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. We're given purpose and mission and life. We're given the hope of eternity. We are set free from sin and set free for God's purposes in our life. And it's from Genesis to Revelation, he's been calling you and calling me to trust in him. It has always been the thread. Will we receive it? My encouragement for all of us as we step into this new year is to remember the promise, to remember God's move to us and just receive the gift. So much of the time we, we beat ourselves up and we think I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough, I, I can't earn God's love, I, He could never love somebody like me. But it's never about what we can do or earn. It has always been about what God does for us. He is never surprised by our sin. You and I are always more surprised by our own failure and brokenness than God. He's not surprised, He sees it, He knows it. And He sent Jesus to die for you in the midst of it. And so would you receive that gift of just Christ's work for you, that he's still at work, that 2020 was just a blip in the eternity of God's plan, and he's working in your life right now in this moment, not just for today, but for forever. And he's got big plans for you. When we receive that and rest in it and dive in, I hope that we will dive into the story of Scripture, not so that we can check off a box or say that we did it or make God feel better about us, but so that we can fully relish and celebrate this redeeming work plan of God. And we can step into 2021, whatever it may throw at us, and still have joy and hope and peace and perseverance and gentleness kindness, the Holy Spirit of God living in us, living for His kingdom purposes, for His glory in His love. Let's step into 2021 together in that mindset, in that posture, and let's see what God's going to do. Let's pray together. God, we love you and we praise you. We give you thanks for this amazing gift of Jesus for what he did, for who he was, for the way he opened us up to the truths of your kingdom, for the ways, Lord, that he invited us into relationship with you. God, for the way that he defeated sin and his death. God, knowing what he was heading to, God, he set his face toward it and he headed toward it boldly. And he said, I'm going to take on what my father set before me. And he died an excruciating death, knowing the glory that was before him. I thank you that he was willing to do that. Thank you that you brought him back to life and that you give us the hope of new life. Help us to rest in that, Lord. Help us to realize this wasn't a change in plan. This wasn't a different direction, but you knew what it would cost when you gave us life and you did it in your great love for us. 
Help us to just fully rest in that, to dive into it, God, to wrap our arms around it. And as we commit ourselves to knowing you more, being known by you, receiving you, Lord, strengthen us, give us wisdom and insight, encourage us, Lord, as we walk through your word these next several weeks, God, just give us new ways of seeing who you are and what you're doing in our life. Build faith up in us. God, move us to repentance in the places where we have sin. Move us toward faith where we struggle to trust you. Lord, for those of us who are not walking with you fully, God, invite us into new life. Let us surrender and receive Christ and trust and confess that we might have eternal life. For your glory, Lord, all for your glory. God, it's in Jesus' wonderful and holy Holy name we pray. Amen.